Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, this is Josh from North Carolina again. I've had uh, some interesting events since I uh, did my last message about recontextualizing my life. Uh, I talked about about middle school and just trying to have a better view on my early life. And I've since done the same thing for what has led me up to now. And uh, I'm in the process of ending a relationship that in my opinion hasn't been working for either of us for at least eight years um and moving on to the next thing where i'll be able to uh put some money aside and go and travel and teach english in taiwan and practice martial arts and do a trip over to Okinawa where karate's from and eat some really good food and go to the beach and the mountains and the forests and just soak it up. And I've been talking to someone uh, that's in uh, Virginia and uh, just our conversations have made me feel uh, like I haven't felt for at least eight years. Um, and this is an exciting time and a uh a wild <laughs> experience and highs and lows for sure um but i just wanted to update you and whoever else may listen and um if you're going through an ending of things and or maybe entering a beginning of something else um just know that you have some uh some good company so take care Hi, Chris. Um, I'm out taking a walk here in the Netherlands. And uh, I heard a song. Made me start thinking about uh, you for some reason. Uh, the name of the song is called uh, Little Things uh, by Ziggy uh, Ramo uh, from Australia. And, uh, yeah, I'm heading back to the USA uh, later on today with our daughter after a two years uh, absence. Um, yeah, I have a feeling that I'm going to be in for one of the biggest culture shocks um, this time around for some reason. I've been coming back for the latter part of uh, like two decades um, and never really had a problem with culture shock. But, um, yeah, so much has happened, I guess, in the last few years. And I've just been hearing from friends and you know, I've been a little bit oblivious to like all that's been going on. Um, of course, I do read the news, but um, things, yeah, just seem more divided than ever. There's seems to be more poverty than ever and more violence than ever. Um, so, yeah, I'm just kind of wrapping my head around that at the moment. I'm on this walk and uh, preparing myself uh, for the journey. Hi, Chris and all the listeners out there. This is Alicia. I'm in New Hampshire finishing up a work day about midweek. I'm a hospice nurse. I work with people who are dying. These people are also living. They're living with some crazy shit just like the rest of us. Um, 
some of the folks I work with have addiction problems. They are um, alcoholics and they're young and it's interesting and hard no matter how long I've been doing this. Uh, I've seen it before uh, but it still is difficult to work with families that are dealing with these complicated levels of suffering. Um, at the same time that it feels difficult, it's also extremely rewarding and feels right and feels comfortable. Um, even though I work in the midst of other people's shit, um, but we all have shit. Uh, it feels good to help with these folks and their families and navigate what they live with every day at the end of their lives. And I know your listeners uh, can appreciate that and are dealing with their own shit. So we're all in it together. Thanks for uh, this podcast. Ain't that the truth? We're all dealing with our shit, aren't we? And everybody else's shit at the same time. Yeah, I'm in uh, Crestone, Colorado again. And uh, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. This town is just at the base of massive mountain range, the Sangre de Cristos. And you can't see the fucking mountains from town because it's so smoked in. And the crazy thing is... There aren't any big fires going on in Colorado right now. This is all coming from California, Idaho, and, um, you know, other points thousands of miles away. It's insane. I look at this smoke map every day trying to decide where to go, what to do. And it seems like the only place in North America that isn't buried under a blanket of smoke right now is down around Phoenix where it's 105 degrees. So, uh, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be escape. Um, maybe that's what people need before we grasp just how dire our situation is, you know, nowhere to flee to. I'm seeing these images of people in Greece, being evacuated from islands that are on fire uh, on ships and then, you know, ferries that take them back to Athens where the fires are surrounding Athens. It's crazy. Uh, it's crazy everywhere. And uh, the whole idea of escape um, is starting to seem more and more remote. So I'm in that kind of mood uh, which probably means I should uh, keep my rant to a bare minimum today. This episode <clears throat> is with a dude by the name of Sean Guerrero, who is a sculptor. Uh, you can check out his work on Instagram. Sean, uh, oh, sorry, it's Chrome Sean Art. Sean spelled S-E-A-N. Chrome Sean Art. Uh, he does amazing stuff. He does these giant, I guess he's most famous for his chrome sculptures that he makes out of bumpers and auto parts that he finds in various places. We talk a bit about that. A lot of it is found materials that he puts together and makes art out of. 
Uh, I guess I know him through Tal Ruspoli, maybe. Um, because Sean has done some work at the Bombay Beach Biennale uh, down in um, at the Salton Sea. Um, but uh, however, I, I, I think that's how I know him. I don't know. Anyway, he lives in Paonia, Colorado. And we stopped in there and uh, visited him uh, for the second or third time and uh, hung out. He's awesome dude, does awesome work. His studio is fucking like stepping into another universe. There's an airplane fuselage in there that he's converting into a, a small film studio. I think that's the idea. Uh, I'll post some photographs from the studio on my website with this episode that Chris Ryan, uh, dot com or tangentially speaking.com. Uh, Check it out, Sean Guerrero. Anyway, this is the second intro I've recorded today. I recorded an intro for a different episode uh, that I was going to post with uh, Mike Marr, who's who hosts a podcast called Take a Deep Breath. And uh, I encourage you to check out that podcast. I was a guest on there a few months ago, and then Mike and I recorded an episode for my podcast, but when I was listening to it, trying to put it together, it became apparent that the recording quality was so bad, I just couldn't ask you to listen to it. He's in the UK, um, and we were recording remotely, and something went wrong. The video kept cutting out, the audio kept cutting out, and then when it came back, it was misaligned, and you know, it was just a fucking pain in the ass listening to it, and after a while, I just gave up. And um, so we'll we'll re-record that another time. But um, it's a bummer because it was a good conversation. Mike uh, walked the Camino de Santiago. He did a Wim Hof um, retreat and spent some time with Wim. And he's, he went through a life transformation. It was a great conversation. I really wish I could bring it to you. But it's fucking remote recording, man. It sucks. Technology. Technology, it enables so much, uh, but the cost is so high. Um, anyway, I don't want to get get into that too much. Um, this conversation was recorded in a room with a couple of microphones, sitting there looking at each other. Sean and I having a talk in his studio, surrounded by his art, the way it should be done, damn it. Uh, I envy Joe Rogan, billionaire Joe Rogan, who can just fly people to Austin and have them, you know, come into his studio and do it that way. That would be great. If everyone listening to this sends me $100 a month, I would be able to do that. Anyway, not to guilt trip you. Not trying to guilt trip you. I'm I'm fine driving around in the van doing it as long as there's enough oxygen to breathe out there and the fires haven't shut down the highway system. Anyway, uh, I hope you're doing well out there. So I'm going to play you out with a tune, one of my favorite songs, really. It's uh, it's called Lost Cause and it's by Beck. Uh, it's incredibly heartfelt beautiful song about um, the end of a relationship i guess one of those intros that i played the guy ending a relationship reminded me of this song or at least the state of mind this time of life a transitional 
time of life that is uh, incredibly difficult um, because the truth is I think so many people when they're going through a change in a relationship like this, they cover their pain in anger. And if you've evolved to a point where you don't do that, where you're not in denial about the fact that you continue to love the person that you're no longer living with or spending that time with, that's that's just rips your heart out of your chest. It's so fucking hard, but it's better than the alternative. It's better than denial and it's better than, you know, burning down every house that you no longer live in. Um, but it's fucking hard. And this song, I think, really captures the the sadness, the depression, the weight, uh, the difficulty. Um, and it's just so fucking artful. And I encourage you to listen to the way that Beck uses backwards music to create ambiance, psychological ambiance. There's something about music played backwards that at least for me, and I suspect for Beck and a lot of other people, creates a, a bizarre sense of nostalgia, almost a dreamlike state of nostalgia. Um, speaking of which, I, I read a, a line the other day. Somebody said, nostalgia is memory without the detail. <laughs> and I think that's so well, so well said. That's so true. Nostalgia is when you're just remembering the good parts and you're not remembering the details, the difficulties, the, the you know, annoyances or the, the incompatibilities. And I think that's what we do when we look back at relationships. We remember all the beautiful, loving, wonderful stuff. And, um, and that's natural and it's not inaccurate, but it's difficult. Anyway, this song is called Lost Cause. It's by Beck and it's from the album Sea Change. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sean Guerrero. Make sure to check out his work either on my page or on his Instagram page, Chrome Sean Art uh, on Instagram. All right. Thanks for listening to this, everybody. And uh, thank you for supporting the podcast, however you do it. And I hope wherever you are, you're breathing easy and you can see the mountains. Bye.
people we used to know They see you coming They see you go They know your secrets And you know this This town is crazy Nobody cares Baby, you're lost Baby, you're lost Baby, you're lost I'm tired of fighting I'm tired of fighting Fighting for a lost cause There's a place where you're going You ain't never been before No one left at your back now That what you thought love was for Baby, you're lost Baby, you're lost Baby, you're lost Tired of fighting, tired of too far from here if you just go over that damn pass of the dusty trails and you end up in this other place called fat city them fat cats sitting in their houses you see they're looking up at that beautiful night sky not even realizing that on the dark side of the moon them venusians is beaming back this energy beam and impregnating the lives of the po- and the wives of the politicians and they're going to be having these baby star seed children to take over the universe. <laughs> this is Jack Nicholson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Nicholson on acid. Yeah, yeah. Of which that's what they're going to show at the Pioneer Filmtown Festival is a retrospective of the Monty Hellman films when Nicholson was an early um, actor doing those B films with Roger Corman and mm. Monty Hellman. Uh, the, they called them the acid westerns and the biker films. Just before, um, 
uh, Born to Be Wild. Was it? It was probably around that same time, you know, because uh, when Hopper and uh, Fonda came out with Easy Rider, that Easy started Rider, the whole thing of the counterculture. Yeah, right. And you had all the B directors right. emulating that uh, aspect in a low production value. I think my favorite Jack Nicholson film is Five Easy Pieces. Oh yeah, yeah. Goddamn. Oh, five easy pieces. Yeah, uh, the the one that I remember, the line that I liked was, um, oh, I can't remember um, the last detail. Goddamn grunts telling me how to do my job. I know how to do my job. Maggot this, maggot that. Yeah, <laughs> but five easy pieces was good too. Uh, really but good. Famous scene in that was where. Uh, <laughs> they're in the diner. Remember the scene? They're hitchhiking, or, or they're driving up. And um, I'd like a the, ch- yeah. chicken salad sandwich. Hold the mail. Oh, you got it. Now, look, you've got a toaster of some kind. <laughs> That's it. That's you, it. You got some bread. All you got to do is make me a chicken salad sandwich. Hold the mayo, hold the tomatoes. Bring me the two pieces of toasted bread and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken. I want you to hold it between your knees. (laughs) Yeah, that's memorable. That's totally memorable. But that was part of that whole counterculture. Yeah, you know the rebelliousness, uh, rebelliousness of that. Time. Do you know his his life story? The um, Nicholson's uh, uh, thing with his parents. Uh, yeah, from what I understand, he didn't know his mother. He was raised by his aunt or something. Well, he was. He okay. So there's a couple. They've got a 16 year old daughter living in New Jersey. The circus comes to town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. The daughter fucks a guy in the circus, right. gets pregnant. So they decide this is the 30s, probably. Yeah. Uh, they decide, as I guess a lot of people did in those days, it would be too damning f- for everyone to know the girl was pregnant. So they send the girl away. Mm-hmm. She has the baby. Then the mother says, Oh, I just had a baby. Right? So the baby, Jack, is raised thinking his mother is actually his sister. Right. And his mother... Wait. (laughs) Now I'm getting confused. So the person he thought was his mother was actually his grandmother. Mm -hmm. And the person he thought was his sister was actually his mother. He didn't know that until someone from Life magazine was writing a profile of him, uh, I think in his... 30s, I think it was after Easy Rider, and they looked up the birth records and saw the sister's name as the mother on the birth certificate. So he didn't find that out through family. He no, found, he found it out, it out through, through a journalist. Yeah. But then he said to the journalist, the journalist called him and said, hey, do you know this? And he was like, no, I didn't know that. And I would really appreciate it if you gave me a chance to talk to my family about yeah. that and didn't include that in your story. Did the guy respect it? He did. That's cool. Yeah. Because that wouldn't happen today. No. Fuck that. That'd yeah. be on TMZ by oh, yeah. noon. Yeah. Um, and then when you think about that, so we were talking earlier about Deborah, uh, our friend Tal's mother. Yeah. She knew Jack Nicholson. Oh, she did. And she hung out. She was hanging out with him and Roman Polanski. You know, who directed Chinatown. Right. Um, and she was at these 
she was at someone's house and they would when they were uh, talking about making the movie mm-hmm. and I said to her was that whole thing in the movie about she's my mother she's my sister she's my mother remember there's that that same kind of thing happens in Chinatown right remember she yeah. has the baby yep with the, the, I don't want to ruin the movie confused. for people yeah. yeah and that came from Jack's life and I asked her like did Jack introduce that into the screenplay or was that already there and she didn't she didn't know well the other thing interesting uh, link or line to that whole six degrees of separation is um with deborah um if she had known nicholson um nicholson's first daughter jennifer of which she knows shig and some of the other cats out in bombay um she is helping give that retrospective at this next pioneer film town festival she's doing the presentation Uh now monty hellman uh, just I think just passed away, hmm. but she's still going to stick with some of those other filmmakers. And uh, as I understand, Tao helped start that. Uh, it's amazing. There. Yeah, it's a weird thing being like in that scene in LA. How it seems so distant and strange, and then you're in it, and it's like everyone knows each other. It's kind of a weird it, small and world. It's still going on even to this day. So uh, what I see, you know, living here in the uh, Colorado Rockies and uh, proximities to Aspen and Telluride is uh, once again, you know, uh, kind of we've been harping on the Hunter Thompson e- ethos. Um, Nicholson and him had quite a few interactions and were friends, but one of the things in Hunter's book that he extrapolated on was Nicholson was having a Christmas party at his place there in Aspen, and Hunter, being the prankster that he was, pulled up in a Jeep with this. Uh, a portable loud generator blasting these squealing pig noises at nighttime and Nicholson had these guards and freaked out and then Hunter finally he called him up and said was this you and he said yes you were you're getting dull you know uh-huh. something like that mm-hmm. and now uh you know and that's the reason why I, I'm probably finding these second generation of Hunter uh provocateurs and kind of working my ilk hmm. and angst with in my own little way that with what's going on in any of these ski towns here. but aspen's getting dull yeah aspen is technically getting dull even though they're trying to go highbrow with a picasso thing and all of that yeah. and then here he uh, dj gets forced out by uh, someone you know picasso real dna yeah. um so we we need to keep that spirit of this Dadaist uh, craziness going, you know. Rocky Mountain High. Yeah, yeah, Rocky yeah. Mountain High. So my guest is Sean Guerrero. If it sounds like, if, if it seems to you like you're you're just dipping in in the middle of a long conversation, that's exactly what's happened. We've been hanging Very out true. for uh, a day or a day here, but, you know, days in the past. We're in Paonia, Colorado, Famed birthplace of uh, Terrence McKenna and Dennis McKenna. I've had Dennis Joe on the Cocker. podcast. Oh, Joe Cocker's from here? Uh, well, he no. lived here, and the reason He's why... He's English, right? Joe Cocker. 
Yeah, Joe Cocker was English. Yeah. But the reason why he wanted to live here was, A, to build no. his wife a, a castle and uh, to grow heirloom tomatoes. Really? Yeah. Wait, is Joe Cocker English? I might be... Conf- Bad Dog's an Englishman, yeah. He was from Sheffield, okay. from what I understand. He, I think he's still alive, isn't no, he? No, he passed away, I think, 10 years ago, something like that. Yeah, he had the Mad Dog Ranch out there oh, by Crawford, right. but he contributed greatly to this town. And the radio station here, KVNF, wouldn't exist without his uh, um, generosity. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Beautiful. So uh, go on my website, and you will see photos, and maybe we'll do a little video. Uh, of the uh, of the art that is sitting around us, I'm I'm in this industrial loft with incredible art all around. I don't even do you do you describe your art or it's do you hard just, for me to describe? Yeah, it's yeah because like, it's all it's all um, a lot. The majority of it is all found objects, repurposed metals, woods, you know, uh, detritus that I find in the desert, and but. Um, Prior to this, my main forte or media that I worked with was old uh, car bumpers. Right. Uh, a lot of chrome. Yeah, a lot, a lot of chrome. Of I, I did that before, but I, I'm getting away from that now. It's it's just for me, it's sort of a passe thing. Although uh, I was stuck on a, a Indian reservation up there in Browning, Montana, the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. I was collecting a lot of pieces I had found strewn about. And one of these Indians... Uh, that was assigned to pull off some of the parts of these old cars. He asked me what I did, and I couldn't explain it to him, really, so I had to show him a picture, and then he really dug it. I I think I showed him a picture of a horse or something. And he said to me, uh, it's funny how we can look at shiny surfaces and see our uh, reflection of ourselves. And then he made a reference to uh, that was why that a lot of the Native cultures despised the ability for these early camera techniques to hmm. take the pictures of their chiefs and they believed it stole their souls yeah you know it was robbing them the white man took everything and now he's taking their souls you know what else do they have left nothing so i kind of that stuck in my uh psyche for a while did that change the way you looked at your work um, no, not really. Uh, I, I didn't really even think of that. When you look at multiple pieces welded together at different angles, it creates a facet on the sculpture, a mirrored image. But we've always had, humans have always had an, asset, an obsession with shiny objects like diamonds or, you know, gold, silver, um, and water. Water, yeah. Um, the animals, little uh, uh, wood rats and crows and ravens they're all attracted to this uh, discarded wrigley's bubble uh, gums wrappers um so maybe if when we look at it it's this kind of vain thing that we see ourselves and uh you know maybe we're in essence kind of looking at our soul or something i don't know Mm -hmm. but i I really liked that context to what that uh, native american did when i was up there and uh, another weird thing that happened was I had found these pieces of this buffalo skull I was working on, and somehow through a serendipity thing, I ended up getting it out to Neil Young because when I worked on this buffalo skull, it wasn't even for him. But I admired one song, which was Long May You Run, and I always thought it was about his buffalo that he had. 
you know. Um, but in the end, I learned, no, it was about this old car that he had uh-huh. and the chrome on it. Huh. Mayor chrome, hard, shine in the sun, long may uh-huh. run. Right. Um, yeah, so... Uh, that was just these weird set of circumstances that, and, and although I've never met him, um, he has this skull, which, uh, was given to him during the Greendale tour in Denver. Mm. Um, but I've, I've liked his aesthetic of some of the rebelliousness too, as to the corporate world and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. He's kind of in the Hunter S. Thompson, exactly Salvador Dali tradition. Yes. Maybe you should add that to the description we were writing earlier. Yeah, because he's definitely like yeah. a middle finger to yeah, yeah to new, to you know audio technology. You know, he's yeah. like, no, no. Here's how you listen to this music. Not that fucking digital bullshit. And also, I was reading recently, like his split with. You know, David Crosby said some oh, yeah, shit, yeah, and he's like, yeah, "All right, yeah, that fuck it, man, it up. that's yeah. over." You yeah. know, like he's willing to walk away from shit that doesn't work. But I, I understand that too, because uh, you know, you have to get away from these other things that negatively affect your yeah. output who's and got what time? you want to see. Yeah, who's got time for? It? That's what you learn as you get older. Is like, here's <laughs> where I want to go, and yeah. these people are going to become these mud holes that I'm stepping in and I'm getting stuck in. I don't want to be around it. Yeah. And it might hurt him, but that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking earlier, something that's really interesting about talking with you about your art is how, you know, you'll talk about a piece of art that's sitting over there in the corner and it connects to a trip you took to the desert, you know, where you found the old car that was the rocket guy. And, you know, so it's like, it's not like, oh, this painting came from a dream I had, or, you know, I just like this color and I wanted to work with this color. It's like, there's a whole part of your life Mm -hmm. that connects. So it's like found objects, but it's also found experiences somehow are integrated into these pieces. Yeah, the the recent one that I was explaining to you about what I call the bullet car that was out there out by Amboy Crater um, and then sleeping next to where this car that I later found was uh, with Mad Mike Hughes and the remains of his um, his Winnebago and that gantry that he had for his rocket. <clears throat> I slept next to it for a couple nights and... I found that it was very relaxing looking up at the stars as I was laying out uh, in my underwear looking up at the stars. But on the facade of his old, what the remains were of this Winnebago was painted a really cool rendition of a coyote and there were a couple ravens painted on it. And then in the morning, these ravens would fly by and it was very peaceful. Um, And I believe that sometimes it, if I calm myself down and I get in spaces like that, I can find these things that still have a soul. So this car that I found was shot full of bullet holes. But the funny thing about it was on the left rear panel, it had this crude um, painting on it. it th- there were these uh, block letters and it said, Dr. Shank, you know, all aged out. And so it, you start assuming a fictitious story that might have occurred. Why did it get there? You <laughs> right. know, um, and then 
the other thing that I've noticed a lot about old cars that we see less and less because most people see them out there in these lonely places is just junk. But when I was on the Indian reservation, a lot of these cars and objects that I was finding that later got made into some of my sculptures, I started thinking about, you know, possibly some of these are old enough to have hauled a grandfather of the uh, Blackfeet tribes. And what were they thinking when they were driving around in a car like this? Yeah. And the irony of these automobiles that were a product of the manifest destiny and commercialization or industrialization, here they once again have their souls stolen by these manufacturers, naming them Mustang and Pinto mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, the Cadillacs Jeep and Cherokee. the Pontiacs and the Jeep Cherokee. Um, <clears throat> yeah, these dualities of uh, uh, this subjection to these cultures and the uh, beating down of these people that lived this, uh, this agrarian life and were pretty much in tune with the land, although they did, yeah, sure, they fought amongst each other, too. But I just saw a lot of ironies there. So when I'm finding objects um, and I'm gathering them up, they all become confused because I'm packing them into my van or my trailer to bring them back here to my studio and build them into something that I don't even know is what it's going to become. But the end result, um, I've been told a lot of times with a lot of them that they end up having a voice to themselves hmm. or a soul in a way, and uh, that's why they sell. That's why the, it relates to a particular person that's looking at one of these objects. And uh, uh, something I can think about right now is the piece that I call uh, Us and Them, which was just a happenstance thing to have some old automobile um, fenders. I think those are off of a 45 Chrysler. And I was gonna toss these pieces out. They had just been sitting around, and I placed one vertically up against the outside wall and it sparked something in me the division bell the pink floyd album art cover mm -hmm. the two mayoran type of heads these almost easter island-esque heads looking at each other two tribes that are the same us and them and in the end we're only ordinary men me and you yeah you know uh and that's how that originated and I've displayed this piece before and it I had no idea that's what it was going to become and now it's got this powerful statement when people look at it and certain ones of our age know this is very Pink Floyd-esque of course the reference from the coming from the album art cover but more so to me it was just happenstance and it evolved into that is that how most of these pieces occur to you? Do you do you just look at the material and start to see something in it? Or do you start off saying, I want to make... I, I mean, it's hard to... People listening to this don't can't see what, <laughs> what yeah. we're talking yeah, about. because they're all their own entity in yeah. and to themselves. I mean, some of them are very abstract, and some of them you can tell this is a... Uh, you're playing off a Kachina doll here. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the, the Pegasus giant chrome horses and 
human Night, figures. Yeah, I mean, some of them you must, I mean, you get commissioned, so you know what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, so I have to be a little bit more specific. But, um, well, like the when I met Jack Palance, the actor, um, he, when he was telling me the story that he did all these crappy movies just so that he could support his ranch lifestyle up in Tehachapi. Mm. And in the end, the irony of him winning the Academy Award for playing what? A knowledgeable cowboy on the range. So he kind of got pigeonholed into that uh, mindset for the character. So while I was what, living, what film was that? This was City Slickers. Ah. So when I was up in Montana, this was after he passed. I had all these pieces laying around on the floor, just scattered pieces of chrome and old cars, and a couple pieces from, from a Seven Up pop machine. So he told me he hated being a part of the corporate Hollywood machine. So this is what I would term as, you might analyze it like um, stream of conscious writing, you know, when you wake up, you uh, jot down what you saw in a dream or uh, visualize. Well, I just started letting this thing evolve. So what came from me, the time I grew up, I, I created this and had seen around the um, old gas pumps and the old soda machines. Those were what I remembered. So this started evolving, this entity, of what this is here. So it's, I call it tribute to Jack Palance. It's a machine. At the top, you have a glass head that's the corporate head, overseeing, always making sure that they're still putting out product. As uh, the 60s and 70s became involved, you had product placement, thus the 7UP logo. But throughout, spattered on this, I put some little sayings that are quotable lines like, say hello to my little friend, make banking sexier, all these. Organic these yoga pants. Organic yoga pants, yeah, very conducive <laughs> to Peonia itself. Um, so this started building, but throughout it is also some symbolism of the theater, the uh, face of the uh, two characters that one would portray. But in the end, he won the Academy Award uh, for City Slickers. So I portray that. He had this peacock. I, I portray that through a little sculpture on the piece. The, uh, this uh, peacock kept pecking my head when I was unloading this uh, Pegasus that he had purchased from me at his ranch. But then the final piece that you'll see on the other side is a man, a cowboy on his horse amongst his cattle. Hmm. So then when you see in the book him on his ranch and he's just on his horse looking at his cattle and uh the opportunity i had to sit down in his um his barn and when he would talk to me and my buddy and he told me about this mountain lion that was in there and you know he he was sleeping in his cabin and the wind was blowing and, you know, the leaves were fluttering in the full moon and all that. And so he goes out in there with his shotgun and his flashlight and sees these two big green eyes and they charged him. And there was some uh, other strange stories to the whole effect of when I met Jack, he had a show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. Mm. He wanted to put me on it, but it had been canceled that season. But years later, irony and happenstance happened again to me where I learned one of my horses through no uh, uh, force of my own ended up in Times Square in the Ripley's Believe It or Not venue in Times Square. 
One of your sculptures. Yeah, one of my sculptures. And this didn't have anything to do with Jack either. This was a piece I had built in Crested Butte. I sold it to a man in Park City, Utah. Years later, he ended up selling it to Ripley's, believe it or not. (laughs) So had Jack been alive, I wanted to go tell him this story, you know. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then, hey, Jack. Believe it or not, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't get weird enough for me, yeah. right? That's how my life's always been. I just have these things happen. When you I ever see a piece of your art where you don't expect to see it? You're like, holy shit, wait, that's um, me. Yeah, and when I see some of them at uh, after they've been away from me for a long time, it doesn't seem like I made them. Really? Yeah, yeah it's this weird detachment. Huh. Yeah, like a, ch- a child that grew up and you don't recognize him because he went away for a long time. Right. Yeah, it's kind of similar. To Where that. did you grow up? Um, I grew up outside of Denver, Colorado, but yeah. I was born in Long Island, New York. Um, as a youngster, I was in Drexel Hill, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And you're, I know your brother's an artist. Yeah, he used to be. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. do that anymore, but he used to be. He's got a lot of talent. I'm looking yeah. at one of his pieces right now. Um, were your parents artists? Yeah, they were creative. My dad was, uh, after he got out of the military, he was uh, a kind of jack-of-all-trades. And uh, he was a lieutenant detective for robbery homicide for the Aurora Police Department. Um, he did quite a few things, but he got tired of that, so he started going into his own ventures, whether they were rebuilding helicopters or airplanes or um, the memorable m- moments that I remember in the 70s coming up to the mountains, he decided to uh, get a start a out- aircraft salvage operation. So we would go up in the spring and fall, and after the Civil Air Patrol would retrieve the bodies, we'd go up there and get the wreckage. Oh, shit. Yeah, and so he had a a buddy named Dave, this black man who had one arm. I kid you not, the guy's arm got bit off because Dave used to work at an alligator wrestling place. (laughs) And uh, so I would have to go up and remove the wings and things like that. And sometimes inside the cockpits, it was pretty grisly. But uh, my first beer that I had, I think around 16 or something, was we were in the Maroon Bells Wilderness, and my dad had to get with the sheriff at the time and so that he would know where the wreckage was. And so I went into the Woody Creek Tavern and had a Ham's beer. No kidding. Yeah, and I'll never forget the, uh, the core, or Ham's Land of Sky Blue Waters, little flickering light thing above the bar and pretty much woody creek tavern is still the same and now once again the hunter thompson thing enters right. into all right unbeknownst that was his yeah. place right? yeah that That's... was kind of his place i had no idea who he i think was. last time i was here you recommended that i should stop and check it out I... yeah it's a great little bar because they left yeah. it the same you can get a good burger and beer for under 15 bucks yeah yeah we did we stopped it was good can we can we take a break for of a second of course all right, we're back after a pee break. Yes. Uh, so we were talking about uh, recovering plane wreckage as a kid. Like, what it? What a bizarre thing to be doing. Did it make you afraid to fly? No, not at all. I, I liked it just because it was an adventure. Yeah, getting out there. Yeah. Like, how did you, I guess your dad had a four-wheel drive, but, I mean, there aren't logging well, roads. Well, he, had a, he had a 69 Ford van, and then... 
he they took this VW and stripped it all down, and they called it the King Crab, even though it wasn't a four-wheel drive. So they would use that as a backup vehicle because a lot of people didn't have four-wheel drives. Mm. Some of the ranchers did, um, but around 74 this would have been you know you still just had guys with skinny tires had jeeps or uh, pickup trucks but a lot of people if you go up to some of these mines and you say man look there's a 63 ford station wagon how to get up here well hell they pulled 30 foot travel trailers over the passes and Mm. a lot of the roads and the mountains they weren't all nice like they are now right they just did families just pulled those things so um yeah it's what my dad had we slept we slept in these van this van that he had and i remember we went to a surplus store and bought all these old army surplus uh sleeping bags that smelled like perspiration and greasy and and all this but dave uh the one the guy with the one-armed uh this appendage he used to he had this funny laugh and he would always take these stogies and he'd lock them into those little things that would lock and then he'd sit there and he would kind of figure out how we're going to disassemble the plane and then load it onto the flatbed trailer super smart guy but i did i had to do all the the uh hard work yeah yeah and then what what was the point just to sell the scrap metal that that made Um, it worthwhile well uh, there was a publication called trade a plane and a lot of the avionics, the pneumatics, oh, uh, right. if the pumps worked, you know, those were valuable. Even right. the engines, Lycoming engines um, on the secondary market. And my dad's competition, my dad lost his space because um, he, he had some tough times. He couldn't pay the rent. So this guy that owned the property took all his inventory, everything. He lost it all. But my father's competition in Denver was this man named J.W. Duff, who had been saving military and commercial and uh, private aviation pieces for since the war, World War II ended. Hmm. And the irony is, you know, years and years later, I was in Montana, and I go back down there, and he dies. And these other aviators take all his inventory, and then I end up with this C-18 that I have now. Just from, from his inventory? That, yeah, that came from his inventory. They were going to crush that, that Beach C-18. So I so saved much. it. I didn't want to see it get crushed. And then I made it into this kind of retro rocket ship art pop-up thing that I'm going right. to start touring around on. Right. I should mention there's a fuselage of an airplane about 50 feet from us. Yeah. <laughs> Inside yeah, so, the yeah, studio. Yeah, slowly being converted into a mini micro cinema theater <laughs> slash art pop up <laughs> getting ready to tour the desert american West. so can you t- can you tow that on a trailer without any special permits you have to put no, brake lights on it or it, something yeah well it's all wired for that it was originally a flatbed and then i just dropped the fuselage down i uh cut out the floor so that you could stand up in it when right. you walk in there all right um but I've always, you know, my aesthetic for uh, science fiction and all that through building model cars and tearing stuff apart and in the van craze days of the early 70s painting murals, um, I've loved being able to find some things and destroy them or they're already destroyed and then interpret them into something else. I, right. I see it kind of as a building a model on that end, uh, functional, uh, purposed pieces whereas my artwork is just 
you know, a lot of it's relatable, whether I'm going into this Dadaist period or the sci-fi or uh, now working with kind of a three-dimensional uh, contemporary abstract shiny objects. But a lot of it's just all crushed and found and just, you know, thrown away. And have you always all orphans. Have you always done this, like, to support yourself, or have you had normal yeah. jobs? Uh, yeah, I, in the early days, I, uh, in my early 20s, I uh, went to uh, welding school, and then I started working on commercial iron, doing cons- uh, commercial construction. Then I, for a while, had my own welding rig, uh, truck. And uh, then I went to Rocky Mountain Institute of Art in the summer, learning how to do silk screening and some other interesting techniques, airbrush, uh, mechanical illustration at the time. You didn't have Illustrator, Adobe, anything right. like that. Um, so I was learning how to do that, but I was trying to polish my skills, and I started venturing off into the uh, artistic uh, thing where I was painting van murals, doing uh, stencil art with rattle cans. Uh, and then that evolved into, I, I started looking at the album art covers of the day of uh, progressive rock bands and the Moody Blues and, uh, you know, King Crimson. A lot of those illustrators all used an airbrush, so you could get a lot of three-dimensional depth. And if you can master an airbrush at that time, you could get a lot more money when you're painting the murals. So I transitioned from my welding but I still had that as a skill set because I use it today, um, but more into a creative avenue of expression. And was that like a, a natural transition or, or was there a point where you had to decide like, am I going to do commercial welding or am I going to be creative? Yeah, I, I decided to take the risk and just say, okay, I can always fall back on some welding jobs, but I want to evolve more into a cre- the creative at- end of it um, and see where it goes. However, I was intimidated as a lot of my friends were going to art schools, uh, you know, like uh, Colorado College of Art and some uh, Parsons Design back east. And I just thought, I'm a hack compared to these guys because they could articulate what they were speaking about they had to learn all the historical aspects whereas i'm more self-taught but also i would just immerse myself like if when i was in paris i would just go visit museums Hmm. exhibits i would read i'd meet artists and uh but i i never thought that i would be able to make it as a living until i had an opportunity as I grew my artwork and became comfortable with my voice that I had, right. my medium. Um, and then it's the people that you meet along the way. And I had met a woman who came down from Boulder and she was an actress. She used to be Marlon Brando's girlfriend. Her name was, uh, she was a Vietnamese French woman, France Nguyen. And she uh, got me into this show where I met Attaway, of course, out in Beverly Hills. Hmm. And then things kind of took on a, a new deal. But I wished I had more of a um, worth work ethic because when you first get out in Los Angeles, everything overwhelms you. You meet these people and it's all la-di-da and you think it's grandiose. But as we talked before we started recording, you realize these people are just like you and they're in this moment too. Yeah, And all this grandiosity and smoke and mirrors is thrown at you 
and you kind of like it, but then you become what you're not. Mm. You kind of lose something. So as you get older, hopefully you learn and then, you know, we run into them and discuss these things later and you're still doing your thing, but you've, you've uh, exasperated what you don't want as you've learned from it. I don't need this to right. stay away from this. Right. This is what I want to do and who I want to be around for, to continue on, give and uh, breathe in what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, you and I are roughly the same age. We were talking to uh, a young dude, Sean, shout out to Sean. Yeah. Sean number two. <laughs> Sean number two, young yeah. Sean. Uh, earlier we were sort of, uh, talking about some of the things that we've learned as we've gotten older. And, and I think we agree that, I don't know how to say this. Like when you're young, you accumulate, mm-hmm. right? You're you're like taking an inhalation. You're breathing in. You're learning. You're you're just absorbing. And then at a certain point, I feel like progressing further now is about elimination. It's about yeah. not spending time with people who are dragging you down. Exactly. It's about not wasting your time going down a road you know doesn't lead anywhere. Mm-hmm. You don't know that when you're 25. Right. But when you're 55, you're like, yeah, that's not, that's not taking me where I want to go. I'm not going to even fuck around with that. It, yeah, it's a, it, it's a good uh, power source. Um, is the marketing industry, the whole commercialization of lifestyles and culture, knows your buttons and yeah. they know how to push it. Yeah. And, uh, I think sometimes the true, uh, dictum of less is more does work in a lot of aspects. Yeah. If you can recognize it. Yeah. And you, and you sort of get focused on that more as you age because you realize like, I don't have as much energy as I used exactly. to. I don't have as much time as I used mm-hmm. to. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it costs more to lose it, to squander it. It feels yeah. different. Yeah. Well, and you've I wanted to, to ask you about this experience you mentioned last night that you you uh, had a stroke. What last year was it? Well, I was camping at a place uh, just outside of Crested Butte. I've been camping there for 32 years. Yeah. Uh, woke up to take a pee in my van at two in the morning. And it was like, I've had vertigo, but this was like vertigo, you know, on steroids. Um, And I crawled out of my van. My buddy in his van was there, banged on his door. He takes me down to the EMT about 10 miles into town in CB. And they hook me up and they say, you got to go down to Gunnison. Next thing I know, they said, you got to ride in a helicopter. I said, I don't have insurance. It's so you were conscious. You, I was semi-conscious, but I was starting to get palsy. So uh, they stabilized me with a bunch of uh, liquid blood thinners and some other stuff, a bunch of saline. I was hooked up to four separate um, um, IVs. And then there I am. I'm realizing, okay, it's pretty serious. I'm taking the heli. I'm not going by ambulance. Um, oh, well. If, it, if I go, I go. And you said, I don't have insurance. And they're like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Talk about that later. Talk about it later. You yeah. don't have a choice. Yeah. So I'm on the helicopter. And we're flying from Gunnison. Beautiful summer morning. The sun's just coming up when I'm in the chopper. You're on a stretcher? Yeah, I was on a gurney. I was right next to the pilot. And the med crew was behind in the rear seat. 
and I'm flying right over Brush Creek where I was camping, and I'm looking down. So I was still semi-aware, and I see all my buddies' vans. And the funny thing was, all the times I had been camping in Brush Creek, there's a, a pair of uh, red-tailed hawks and their generations of. And I always love enjoying and lay, laying there, beautiful sunny afternoon, looking up, the aspens are rustling, and I, you would see and hear the hawks. And I always wondered what their point of view was. And it occurs to me, dude, you're getting your wish. Yeah. You're getting to see what they see on a beautiful day. And it calmed me down. It's like, okay, if I die, I, I don't care. Hmm. But the other weird thing is, is I'm flying on that chopper. We're, so now we're flying over Kebler, which brings you over to Paonia, yeah. right? Um, and the, the weirdest thing is that damn Neil Young song popped into my head again. Long may you run, long may you run. That's what I'm hearing in my mind. Huh. And I'm kind of humming this, and the med crew is saying, what's that song? And I said, oh, it's just a Neil Young song. Um, so now we're flying over Kebler, then we fly over Paonia, and then the Grand Mesa to Grand Junction. And I was totally calm about it. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go in the hospital. I'll be there for two days. I'll get out, and I'll get back to my artwork. Uh-uh. No, uh, it was more than I thought, and even after... I was stabilized, and then they got me off of the liquid blood thinners to the uh, regular pill form. I had to do all these tests, uh, these cognitive tests and these spatial tests to see if I had any eye damage or A, B, C, D, or E. And I pretty much passed. There's about 100 questions and these fractals that you got to recognize and all that. And I passed it at about 90%, but the woman asked me, she says, tell me uh, on the clock what 20 after 4 is. Tell me the positions of the hands. And I couldn't. Huh. There's no way I could do it. It was just so foreign to me. Wow. Yeah. What an interesting, yeah. specific thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was and really, that, really strange. Has that come back to you? That yeah, came? it came back to me. Hmm. So after getting out of the hospital, um, Robin helped me get out here i'm walking around the town with her and it seemed like i didn't even recognize this town like really this is weird what did you have surgery or was it just the no. thinners blood thinners yeah it was blood thinners so you had, like had a tear in my clot? vein oh i had a tear in my vein yeah in the right vein that comes up through your the back of your neck and it just healed naturally no it's still there uh. yeah i thought it would be on uh, aspirin now but they said no uh we want you to remain on blood thinners so when i got back in my shop here and i see all these half-finished projects my mind wouldn't i knew i made them or they were in the process of being made but my mind wouldn't allow me to realize how i put them together and then that's when i i said well i'm going to take an a week off and then the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to try and go back to what I originally used to make when I started doing sculpture which was taking some chrome pieces some leftovers that I had had from the Blackfeet Indian Reservation these old car pieces and I started formulating that Hunter Gonzo fist just for myself oh. to see if it I could do it right this act of rebellion, you know. Uh, yeah. And I'm still here, fuckers. Yeah, I'm still here. And so it started coming out cool. People uh -huh. were coming by, man, that looks like that gonzo fist. And then these other serendipitous moments happened where 
I received the from another person here the magazines when he died in Aspen Times, the, the memory uh, of. And then the next thing was the box, the uh, fake Tate Modern from Dennis Hopper to Marlon Brando, the Taos connection. And I said, I'm going for it. I'm going to get in this uh, damn museum in Aspen Dude. through my own way. And then sure enough, you know, um, with DJ and working with him yeah. with the gon whole Gonzo thing and now uh, some co cohort muckstrism. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to help keep this, uh, that idea alive in the mountains. Right. I'm trying to preserve that, uh, the surrealist re renaissance of renegadism. Everything is connected in yeah. your life, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really strange. And it kind of makes you high in a way. Um, it makes you hyper alert and you don't want to really talk about it because you feel like you're going to jinx it. Mm, yeah. So I try to float on, is this path, is it continuing? Yeah. You know, are these other dots continuing to connect to where I want it to go? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that aspect of it. Uh, I think it's pretty yeah. fun. I mean, I know a lot of artists, but you probably are the person whose work and whose life are the most intertwined mm. of yeah, of I anyone I can think of. It's really interesting. I mean, you know, like last night you mentioned the stroke, and I thought, oh, I want to ask him about that tomorrow and mm -hmm. how that's affected his life and all that. But but you end up connecting all these things that were separate stories last night. And now yeah. I see how they're all part of one progression in your life, like one pivot. Right. You know? Yeah. I, 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 when I mentioned to you, um, I feel like there's some dude with some knobs or some things with knobs kind of, you know, I'm on this VHF broadcast and, you know, they're switching channels and they're all like these TV series or something that, slowly morph themselves into something new um and it's strange <laughs> I, you know i don't i just don't know where it leads uh i like it i like the adventure yeah uh it's interesting but do you I, feel like you're like i sometimes say i i uh i think people make the mistake of thinking that life is like floating on a lake and they can just stay in one place mm -hmm. but actually we're floating down a river yeah. and you don't have the choice you don't have the option to stay one place you're moving no matter what no matter what you're moving i mean yeah. do you feel like do you have control of your life or do you feel like you're just sort of floating along and it's going to take you, the currents take you where it takes you? I let the current take me where I need to be. And I don't fight. It's like, um, you know, I'm not fighting that path of trying to swim upstream. Right. I'm letting it take me downstream. Um, but there's some things that I, I could get involved in. I just say, no, that just doesn't feel right. Um, I validate it by either the people I meet or what's kind of feeling inside me. And that leads me to say, uh, all right, um, this is the little tributary that you just spun off on from the main river. Mm. You're going to float in here. You're going to rejoin while. the yeah, river eventually. Re yeah. I'll rejoin the river. But yeah. this stream right now is where I need to lead. Right. 
So do you know, like you, you talk about recognizing where you need to go or something doesn't feel right. The sort of intuitive knowledge that you use to guide your path or guide yourself. Have you always been in touch with that or is that something you've cultivated through uh, life? Yeah, yeah I've, I've started learning to just, um, well, I started cultivating it around 40. Um, I realized as turning 40, I wanted to do something different. And I had an opportunity. My aunt was living in Paris, and so I, she find, I've traveled not as extensively as you, but I've been to some places around the world. And I just said, you know, I think I'm going to finally go to Paris because I like creativity and art and uh, theater and things, lifestyle. So I'll go over there and just see what happens. And it blew me away. I don't know why I didn't go over there years ago, but I still did it at 40. And through a series of events, once again, um, I end up in the country. And through some other people I knew, I came back and I said, I want to buy a farmhouse in the wine country. That's what I want to do at 40. I want to learn how to cook French food. Did you speak French? Yeah, I started. Uh, yeah, I started to learn to speak French, and and then you know, I yeah, everything that you could possibly imagine started happening. I met a beautiful French woman that had this chateau and her family from the 16th century, and then I ended up buying a junky old little wine house in the wine country, and I was doing everything, learning, uh, learning the language, cooking the food, the lifestyle. And I said, wow, but what I remember was when I was living in Crested Butte at the time, when I was going back and forth from there to, Crest, uh, to France, one of my buddies said to me, I had told him I want to buy a farmhouse. And he says, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and, yeah. So I've, yeah. I've learned to just trust my instincts. You put it out there and if you recognize that these opportunities are in front of you, they're saying, hey, here we are, uh, then I, I just kind of am going with that aspect now. But uh, how do you know, I mean, when you open yourself up to serendipity that way, so many things present themselves to you. So you bought this farmhouse, mm -hmm. you're learning to cook French food, you're learning the language, you're in love with this beautiful woman, now, how, how did you decide that that wasn't your path? How did you pull out of that? Or why? Why uh, did you pull well, away from the that? Emotion, emotion uh, my family. Oh, uh, your, your parents were. Yeah, my parents. Yeah. My mother was sick. Um, you know, a lot of different things. And I, I have uh, little regrets for other things, but... I was doing everything for a pure reason. Um, I gave up that to be back with my uh, father because I didn't get to see my mother pass, and that you know that still sits heavy on my heart. So I said, I'm not going to do that this time. I want to show my dad that I care about him. So I gave up all of that. That was probably one of the strongest reasons mm -hmm. why I came back here, um, and it was a hard thing to do. But then I realized, you know, that was just another chapter in my book, and then just move on. And then I, that's when I went up and stayed in Montana. Hmm. 
up there by Big Fork. And then I had other opportunities when I was doing stuff with Jack Hanna and uh, meeting and being, I had a dog. My Malamute was my best buddy, uh, Nemo. Um, he was, as I was, uh, I was uh, semi-reclusive up there coming back to and from Montana and Colorado. And I loved him. Uh, so he, he kept me calm and sane. Hmm. Uh, so yeah. And then after my dad passed away, I, I know I, I knew I, I love Colorado. I love the mountains. Um, I love the area I live in and that's why I wanted to come back. I didn't want to go back to a big city. I wanted to just come back to a place that had fresh air and food and creative people and be able to be having access to big wide open spaces and the starry sky and uh, things like that. That that grounds me. Had you been to Paonia before? Um, yeah, one time when a friend of mine uh, invited me over and we sat in Azura, and I described to you when I was on the Mesa there, mm-hmm. looking down, it very much resembled a lot of where I live. Oh, in right, in France. Yeah. yeah, so there was a visceral uh, calling. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Almost like you were going back, but also moving forward. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's, uh, I like meeting people like you and along the way. And, you know, like when you come and we have a sit down or talk or catch up or I go somewhere and I do the exact same thing. It's really nice and it's simple. Um, this is what matters most. I feel it goes back to the old storytellers around the campfire, and um, that's that's what we're doing. We're telling stories and talking about them, and getting yeah. to know each other, and that's the most important. I think yeah. interacting. I think Stephen Hawking once said that you know the most important thing that we do is continue to talk to each other. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. It- moving into a stage of life where you're I don't know I don't know I don't know how to say this but like it feels like you have something of value you know yeah. for younger people and and younger people are you know like your buddy Sean here who was sitting with us a few minutes ago mm-hmm. I can't believe how sincere and I mean, maybe I'm misremembering my own youth. I I don't know. But there seem to be a lot of young people who are really uh, hungry Mm -hmm. for some kind of clue, some kind of guidance, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way that um, I don't know if I was. I I mean, I definitely hung out with older people, and I guess I was kind of seeking their their advice. But... I'm just surprised as I age into, you know, my 60s. I, I see it too, Chris. Yeah. They're like, they re- they really do want to know what it is that, that we could tell them. And all we can tell them is what we know. We can give them some <laughs> shortcuts and say, well, you know, I did this and it didn't yeah. work out. But um, go with, you know, the little drive that drives you, but don't get lost in the fog. Try you, not to. Yeah. I mean, and getting back to that question, you said you started cultivating that. Uh, sort of relationship with with intuition mm-hmm. around forty, yeah, 
Is it that you weren't cultivating it before then, or is it that's just the age where you started to hear it more clearly? Um, yeah, when I went to Paris, I just I was by myself. I could walk around all the time, and I just started thinking, who do I want to be, and what do I mm. really want to listen to? Right. Um, I wasn't bombarded by my friends' thoughts and influences and uh, these things going on at the time that I wanted to be involved in. I could walk around and just look up or down or walk in or get lost and run into people and watch life. Yeah. Uh, Paris is technically just a theater. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, yeah. it made, it allowed me to uh, get out of that box that's put around you and think beyond that. And then that's when I was starting to learn a lot more about Salvador Dali and, you know, uh, the movement at the time and realize, hey, these guys just did their thing and they were good. And sure, they had some promoters and media people of that time, but really they just stuck to what they wanted to do. Right. Um, and they became, a lot of them became these people who made movements, but I don't. I don't think any of them really tried to do that. Right. They were exactly. just doing their thing. Right. Um, and then other people followed them. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Yeah. People who the said. The Forrest Gump effect. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't become a leader by deciding to lead. Right. You become a leader by doing what by doing. is true. Yeah. Doing. And other people follow. Or yeah. they don't. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. Yeah. You can just. Like we said, give them some advice and say, there, here's why I do it. Make sure it comes from a pure thing. You'll know it when you're doing it because it'll reflect on the people that are asking you. Yeah. Um, that's all you can do. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm I, glad I, you were here and came through because I love talking to you. And, you know, we discuss future plans or past and it's a great thing and yeah. it's good to know you and your lady yeah um i yeah. just want to say that to you thank you as a friend yeah thank you man i hope this is uh part one of a many part ongoing I conversation so we have over the years i hope so too sean guerrero i i will put links and all that shit so people can see your art thank you chris okay mom uh tell people what they can order from the garage okay in our cottage garage we have Lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your rep? 
Dance into the ground. 